again, everybody. This is Mark Mavsessian. I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's Law School. And I'm joined once again by my friend and colleague, Professor Dijeralami, the center's other co-director, for an episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, that's one word, or also on various streaming platforms like Spotify and uh, Android and also um, iTunes. So you can find us in a lot of different places. Well, Mark, welcome back. We missed you on our last episode. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I was. I enjoyed being a, a, a listener on the last episode very, very much. It was a wonderful uh, discussion about the nuns and some of your work and with a couple of new guests. But yes, I'm glad to be back in the uh, in the in the speaker's chair. Yeah, glad to have you back too. Well, um, our podcast today is going to be a little bit unusual, not completely unusual, but you know, most of the time we focus on on cases or issues in, in the news about law and religion, but we also have a reading society here at St. John's Law School, a law and religion reading society. And we thought we'd spend this episode talking about the latest couple of pieces that we read for the reading society and the discussion we had. Um, and the books I have to say were chosen by Professor DiGerall and me. Um, one of them is a book called A Canticle for Leibowitz, which I must say is a book I'd always heard of, but, but can't say I ever actually read. And also Alastair McIntyre's book, After Virtue. So we had a really good discussion with the students about this, about the nature of knowledge, about the, the sort of moral character of knowledge. And that's what we'd like to speak about today. So I think, Mark, I'll begin by turning it over to you and asking you to tell our, our listeners, and listeners, maybe you knew about this book. I, I said a second ago I didn't. Um, what's A Canticle for Leibowitz all about? Sure. So A Canticle is a post-apocalyptic story. It's a it's a novel of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and when, it is was, it, when is it written, Mark? It was written in 1959, so right at the moment where people were, were really kind of thinking about post-apocalyptic scenarios, uh, as, as they do from time to time. Um, but it, it tells uh, the tale of a world of great scientific achievement, um, that had really quite devastating results for humanity. It tells about a nuclear war where millions of people are uh, killed and that had horrific consequences for those who survived and the offspring of those uh, who survived. So what we did actually in this, in this session was that the, the, the novel uh, contains three different stories spanning three different time periods of this world. Um, but we had the students read the first story. Um, the first story is set in the contemporary Southwest. Um, the landscape is a, a kind of desolate desert, uh, generally populated by bands of nomads who have been genetically deformed by the fallout of the disaster. And right in the middle of the desert uh, sits this abbey, the Abbey of Leibowitz. Uh, Leibowitz being one of the great scientists of the age before the devastation who had later sought sanctuary uh, in, in the Catholic Church, sought sanctuary, we'll, we tell readers and uh, listeners in a second about, just about why. Um, but the church in this story did what it could to preserve these people's lives by making them monks. The idea being that monks would be less likely to be killed off by um, the angry mobs that remained. Um, so you have this community of monks that exists to preserve knowledge after the devastation. Um, although we'll talk about just what it is that knowledge is or purports to be uh, in, in this world. 
Right, because the, the, the key finding here happens when one of the novice monks accidentally discovers a cache of material that was saved by Leibowitz himself, including some sort of blueprint. And this sets off a major controversy in his order of my, I, I got to tell you, listeners, it's a strange story. I really, really have to tell you. And this sets, this blueprint sort of sets off a kind of controversy. Well, that's right, because I think what had happened was that um, because of the, the devastation that had been caused by all of the smart set, so to speak, um, there were these pogroms of, um, of, of smart people that, that ensued, you know, the, the uh, people- The brights, the, the brights. Exactly, the, the, the idea was that um, people would call themselves, quote unquote, simpletons. And simpleton meant basically the person that rejected all of this, you know, smart guy learning uh, which had caused all of these terrible, terrible problems. And so, um, you know, people wanted the, the smart set, the brights killed off. Uh, and it's, and it's really that, that results in the, in the monastery and in the church, um, giving sanctuary to, to such people. But, but you're right, Mark, there is the discovery of this, uh, blueprint, which is a kind of remnant of the, of the past world. And people don't sort of know what to do with it. They know that it's at least the, even the monks, the learned monks, they know that it's a fragment, a, a piece of something from the past world, but it talks about, you know, technical specifications uh, in, lang in a language and referencing knowledge that the monks simply don't have uh, any longer. And so the story is sort of what happens uh, to these documents and to the monk uh, who discovers uh, the, the blueprint and the painstaking way in which the monk uh, devotes his life to the documents um, uh, whose, whose meaning he has no idea about. Um, right, he illuminates a manuscript. He illuminates a manuscript uh, over, over a long period of time uh, and eventually the so-called New Rome decides that there are a sufficient number of proofs to canonize the, uh, the Leibowitz, the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the blessed Leibowitz uh, for whom the monastery is named. And part of the proofs actually concern documents that were found by this, this monk. And so he sets out to Rome and he barely makes it there. Actually, the, the bandits along the way end up taking the illuminated manuscript, which is he's heartbroken about. But the Pope consoles him that it's a good thing that the illuminated manuscript was so beautiful because... Uh, it, it, it succeeded in deceiving the bandits not to take the authentic, the authentic document, the right. blueprint itself. And, and ultimately, on the way back from this meeting, the, our, our monk is killed. And that, that sort of com completes the first, the first story. Okay, so it, as I say, it left me scratching my head a little bit. But, but Mark, you also thought that, I mean, look, it's a, uh, I don't, I'm just having fun with my colleague. I mean, obviously, it's a very powerful story. It's very well regarded. And Mark, the other book you assigned was Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, which I actually had read, gentle listeners. And um, uh, you think that there's some connection between these two. What was the connection you saw? Well, there, there's a, um, and, and I recognize that this, these were my selections and I, and I, and I push the boundaries of, of, my, of my good colleagues, uh, uh, literary uh, uh, sort of at the push the envelope as much as I could, but I recognize that I was doing so. I'm just, listeners, <laughs> listeners I'm, just, I'm just not a science fiction fan. That's, that's what it kind of comes down to. So please take everything I say with a grain of salt here. But he, he's very tolerant. But what did you see was the connection with McIntyre? So, so McIntyre, there's a couple of connections. One is a more a more overt connection, and that is McIntyre begins his uh, his book really with a kind of recounting of 
um, the, of, of the background of a canticle for Leibowitz that we have described. And he has a very particular purpose in mind, but when you read the first few pages of uh, After Virtue, you realize that he's discussing the story of Leibowitz, right? The first story of Leibowitz. Why is he doing so? Well, he's talking about, and he's trying to describe a world and of course, for McIntyre, his interest is in moral theory and moral uh, agreement and disagreement rather than in scientific uh, uh, knowledge. But he's trying to describe a world, which ultimately he claims is our world, um, that is uh, beset by disagreements because it is um, uh, because people are relying on and really only have access to fragmentary knowledge about the moral traditions. Uh, and moral uh, base, bases from which the arguments about morality uh, that they make are drawn. Um, and so there's a, there's a sort of an, an obvious uh, uh, a reference to um, a canticle for Leibowitz, but this is the use uh, to which McIntyre puts the story while one story is talking about the sort of use and misuse uh, of, and the, and the nature really of scientific knowledge, McIntyre is talking about the use, the misuse, and nature of moral knowledge. So, Mark, let's talk a little more about that. So, so what are the problems with with having a fragmented understanding of of past knowledge when it comes to uh, moral theory, which, as you say, is McIntyre's basic uh, question? So, I think from McIntyre's point of view, the, the problems are that we have uh, that that a moral disagreement is interminable, uh, that it can, and not just that it sort of goes on and on, but it, that it can find no, no resting place, right? No point at, at which the various participants can find that they've made any, how to put it, progress or that they've come to any agreement. Um, and, 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 and that results in, um, in moral arguments, political argument becoming ever more shrill, ever more a question of just flat assertion and counter-assertion, uh, which McIntyre claims is a result of morality being conceived as, um, as a kind of statement of emotional support or uh, emotional opposition. So, but Mark, is the analogy that, that just as the monk, I think his name was Francis in A Canticle for Leibowitz, just as he doesn't really understand the blueprint and how it fits into the wider body of knowledge in Leibowitz's world, so today, when we are making moral arguments, we only look at fragments of the, I guess, the Western tradition that we're a part of, and that's the problem? Is that the analogy that's being made? I think that's right, although uh, we can debate about whether it's the Western tradition that's being, that's being used or whether it's individual bits from various pieces of different Western traditions that are being collected. But yeah, I think that that's, that's essentially... Correct. So the, the, the idea is that we, because we don't, because we're not aware of, um, now, of course, one, one difference between uh, Canticle and, um, and the story that McIntyre wants to tell is that in Canticle, you had an actual destruction of the knowledge, where, in, of course, in McIntyre's story, you don't have a kind of a, a flame deluge or something like that. Um, what you have is different intellectual movements that... Um, break apart or splinter what was a kind of, at least in McIntyre's telling, a unified account of what moral knowledge was about. Um, and over time, as those new strategies are more and more successful, 
uh, people in, in contemporary times have less and less access and less and less knowledge about what the what the original was all about. Yeah, it could be that. It could also be, I mean, since we're a law and religion center, we can talk about religious pluralism. It, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, okay, one, one reason for this fragmentation might be that we have lost the whole of the tradition. Another reason might be we now have lots of different traditions which are now entering the jurisdictional space or jurisprudential space. Um, and that itself might be causing some of these difficulties. I think that's right. And, and in truth, um, McIntyre ac accounts for this possibility in some of the later chapters. We only assigned one uh, very famous uh, chapter, chapter 14, for the students. But, but the entire book is, a, is an attempt to account for not just a single tradition, um, but a, a plurality of traditions even within, let's say, a Western literature or Western philosophy, um, which itself accounts for uh, the, the, the inability of people within those traditions, unless they recognize that they're within those traditions, to know, to know exactly what it is that they're doing. And I have to say, Mark, some of McIntyre's thesis, I sometimes see in, in my own students in, in, in class and, and, um, and drove me, at least in part, to try to create a course for them where at least some of the bases for, let's say, arguments about justice or about fairness or about autonomy, or about uh, uh, freedom of contract, or, or, or other kinds of issues that they see frequently arising in their own classes, so that they could make sense, at least a little bit, of where those arguments that they see in legal material so frequently are coming from, um, not, of course, the whole of where they're coming from, but one kind of strain or strand or set of ideas within which they might make sense. Yeah, that's very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about that. We had a really nice discussion with the students who came out on a weeknight uh, during the sort of towards the end of the term to talk about this. And so one thing we talked about was um, the nature of knowledge, which I know, Mark, is something you're really very interested in in pursuing in your future work. Yeah, that's true. I think one of the nice things, Mark, I don't know how you felt about this, that comes out in, in uh, the Miller book in, in Canticle is that the moral worth of knowledge is actually quite uh, ambiguous in the story. Um, after all, it's the, it's the uh, uh, achievement of great knowledge, which is ultimately responsible for the devastation of humanity. Yes, because I, as I remember in, in Canticle, in the part that we read, um, uh, the flame deluge, which has occurred in the past, is described as what happens is the scientists go to the leaders, the princes, of the, of the different countries and say, look, we have this great technology for this wonderful weapon, but you should never use it because it will lead to all kinds of destruction. This is just meant to assure mad, mutually, uh, what is it, mutually? Assured destruction. Sorry, yes, mutually assured destruction, right. Uh, and of course, all the governments think to themselves, well, if we just go first, we can get away with this. And so it's a nice little reflection on the difference between knowledge and actual moral character, right? Or knowledge and wisdom, actually, we talked about among the students. That's exactly right. And, and the students made some nice points, actually, that, you know, it, maybe it's not, not knowledge itself that is, uh, that is, you know, sort of morally ambiguous. It's knowledge in combination with, with as you say, human pride or, or uh, hubris and, and, uh, that, that makes knowledge particularly dangerous and those so those were some interesting points but uh, uh, but yeah so I think in the in the in, in canticle you know there's there's a on the other hand um, you have what seems to be a, the, these monks 
who, you know, they're not really even sure just what they're doing and preserving these documents that they don't understand, but somehow they know that it's worthwhile. They know that it, they, they think, okay, maybe, maybe it's not the children of the present generation or those children's children, but in, with enough time and thousands of years or maybe tens of thousands of years, the preservation of this knowledge is going to, it's going to be good. It's going to be worthwhile. There will some, be somebody that will know what, what to make of it. And so you do see in, in Miller, I, I do think this ambivalence of uh, knowledge on the one hand in combination with the fallen quality of humanity is really quite dangerous and bad. But on the other hand, there's some kind of natural instinct or drive in, 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 uh, in human beings to want to preserve it and take care of it and be the custodian of knowledge for future generations. It's interesting, Mark. So I don't know the answer to this question. Maybe so, so was Miller himself a Christian? Because you could look at this in a way as as kind of a parody of what Christian monks did. I mean, Christian monks, when they did illuminated manuscripts, they were illuminated manuscripts mostly of the Gospels, right? Whereas this is an illuminated manuscript of a technical blueprint that has nothing to do with human salvation. So, so was this kind of a parody? Was Miller himself a Christian? You know, I think I actually, I don't know the answer to the second question about whether he was a Christian, but there have been interpretations of the book that actually people aren't quite sure whether this is a kind of a send up or a parody or whether it actually is somewhat tender and trying to say something true and real, or maybe perhaps both, right? It, it's part of the charm, I think, of the book that we, the outside readers, we, we kind of know uh, looking in that this is that they don't understand, that they're unable to, that they don't know what, if they really knew what this was, they wouldn't be making illuminated manuscripts of them. But of course, that's a privileged position uh, that, you know, perhaps perhaps others at the time of the, of the original monks, maybe there's a different society that was sort of looking mm -hmm. in on, right. on what they were doing, and they maybe they had the same kind of attitude. And so this is, this is part of the interpretation of the book, I think, that there's a, there's a kind of a um, an, an uncertainty just, just about what Miller is about. It doesn't kind of hit you over the head with one message or another. There are a couple of possible leanings. Sure. Well, and this is, this is the great thing about literature, or I, should, or I should say slightly differently, this is the thing about great literature, that it has all different kinds of interpretations. And this leads to the second question I thought we'd talk about, which is, so we're lawyers, we're law professors, we're not literature professors. And so I asked during the, the, the group meeting uh, when we did this last week, I asked, or the week before, I guess, I asked, um, well, what, how do we cash this out as lawyers and law professors? What is the meaning of all this for us in law today? Because unlike uh, in the case of great literature, law has to have an answer. Yeah, and I think it's a very good question. And, um, and, and after that, we, we ended up, we started talking, Mark, about just what the role of, of law professors ought to be, right? Whether law professors should be in the business of of uh, simply teaching rules, uh, teaching what the law is, uh, or um, that is to say, conveying this knowledge, right? This this uh, information, the complicated information that takes years to to understand. Because of course, law professors are sort of like monks doing illuminations, right? right? We're looking at you know Supreme Court opinions. If and, only <laughs> we're looking at Supreme Court opinions, doing all kinds of wonderful illustra illustrations, and you know. I don't think anyone's going to be having, you know, museum exhibitions of law review articles in the future, but we're spending our time commenting on this. But how do you tie this into McIntyre? Synthesizers. Synthesizers, so on, right? correct. So, um, so, so one question about this is whether it's possible to, um, to do this, to do our jobs without also doing the job of, um, how to put it, uh, 
teaching about, or at least talking about uh, moral propositions, right? And I think uh, obviously to some extent it's necessary to talk about moral propositions because law is infused with moral considerations. And so any rule that is derived uh, in law, any rule that one comes up with in law is going to ultimately be derived from some kind of moral position one way or another. But, you know, there are sort of ways and ways to do this, right? And, and the extent to which law professors or lawyers want to uh, incorporate a sort of sense of moral, um, uh, moral guidance or character formation and so on within within their own legal practice or within the way they think about law, I think that's probably a contested matter. Right. But if, if we're if we're taking McIntyre to heart, I guess we'd say that unless one has a good grounding in the whole of the whole of the body of moral reasoning from which one is drawing, you know, specific conclusions, one's just going to get it wrong, right? Yeah, well, I think so. McIntyre has this very famous, um, or at least somewhat famous, uh, set of examples that he gives where he talks about different positions that that one might take, you know, about what justice demands, let's say, with respect to uh, rights of bodily autonomy, as opposed to uh, what justice demands, um, you know, when it when it comes to, uh, um, you know, the preservation of human life and so on. And, and these are arguments, of course, that one hears a lot, uh, not just those kinds of arguments, but arguments about uh, liberty or equality and so on. And so I think it's true that McIntyre would say, those arguments, you're not going to get very much traction with them, let's say, in a law school classroom, unless students have some kind of a shared framework or understanding about where it is that other people are coming from and the arguments that they're making, right? The sort of sources or larger um, set of principles or the framework, really, uh, within which whatever position they're taking is situated and within which it can be understood. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting, too. Uh, our students really pushed back against the claim, and I made this claim in the, in the, in the meeting, that, well, you know, it's really not the point of uh, a law school in 21st century America to be trying to inculcate or impart a moral vision, that, you know, the job of law professors was to teach students a skill, teach them legal analysis, train them in understanding doctrine, and and then kind of leave it to the students themselves to figure out about the moral framework here and whether it was consistent with the moral framework or not. And I said it sort of provocatively, but I was struck that the students really were not comfortable with that. They thought, no, actually, it is a kind of role of, of professors in law schools to be explaining the moral valence of these of these doctrines they are discussing. Yeah, I, and I think... I, I, I was maybe not surprised, but, um, you know, students had their own examples. For example, some of the many of the students that were in our session were former students of, of Marx and mine in our respective classes. And they gave some examples of situations within our respective classes where we did uh, raise moral questions as relevant to the legal issues that, that are involved. But I mean, I, I thought that the point that you were making, Mark, was actually a good one that, that um, uh, you know, you don't... Uh, uh, for me, a professor need not want to sort of inculcate morality in the sense of telling students what to think or how to think about a question um, from a moral point of view. But it's a different thing to say that the professor ought to raise the, um, the questions that, uh, that implicate moral matters um, that we talk about all the time, just, just so this kind of lifted to the surface and can be identified and 
and thought about um, uh, separately or distinctively from the doctrine that, that, that we're learning. Right, Mark. I, I think I would use that word that you just used, that is identify. I think it's certainly appropriate for a law professor to identify the moral questions. But as I said to the students, you know, as a law professor, I have a captive audience and my job is not to be there to push them to think a certain way on issues which they have every bit as much a right to, to uh, think about as I do, you know? So, um, but that's a difference. It's a different from, from sort of inculcating a, a captive audience or, you know, identifying moral issues to think about. But just the last thing I want to say is to circle back, if this is correct, or at least if one reading of a canticle for Leibowitz is correct, and if McIntyre is correct, given the current state of our society, we're not going to get very far in a kind of consensus moral discussion because we just don't have a consensus on many of these moral issues that find their way into our law. I think this is a, it's a major problem. And I think actually McIntyre himself is quite uh, pessimistic with respect to the, how to put it, the future of moral discourse, moral and political discourse in the society. But, you know, I think, um, I do think, uh, well, we're not going to, certainly not going to solve this problem, so to speak. There, there may be better and worse ways to go about um, fixing up holes, let's say. Uh, and, and maybe one of those ways is to more self-consciously do the kind of work of identification that, that we were just talking about within the context of education. That is, that, okay, we're not going not to inculcate, we're not going to instruct people about what to think. That would be wrong. But um, the... And I think one of the nice examples that McIntyre uses is the, the issue of practice, that the more a person um, comes into a practice, he uses the example of a chess player, that you learn how to be a good chess player by engaging in the particular virtues um, over a long period of time that make for uh, a good chess playing. And so it might be that the same kind of thing could be said for thinking about, you know, whatever the term, whatever the idea might be in law. If you think about mens rea, what is it that makes for, uh, you know, a, a, a good mind as well as an evil mind, right? What, what kinds of, of moral frameworks do we have for thinking about uh, what makes for a good character and what law to be interested in? Or in contracts, which is one of the subjects I teach, what is good faith in performance? What is, it, what is a good faith performance? How do you determine that? And I should say also, my, my view is that the classroom is rather different from one's writing. When one is writing, of course, one, one should try to figure out the moral valence of what one is writing and, and describe these things. Um, but that's different from actually being a classroom teacher, at least in my view. I, I, always, I always resented it when I was in school and teachers would get up and sort of pontificate and tell us what you know, the right answer was because it was always sort of the subtext was, and I, the professor, I'm a great moral sage, right? I don't feel that way. I'm not a moral sage. I don't, I don't, I don't either. And, I don't either. And perhaps because of that experience, I've always been very careful in the classroom not to do that kind of thing. Well, look, it was a really great discussion and I'm glad you chose these books, Mark. I, I want to say, I hope all the listeners understand that it was really good. And I'm, and I'm grateful to the students. I hope some of them are listening to this podcast because they really helped advance my thinking about these things. So, uh, that's it for now. I think our next podcast will probably get back to more bread and butter law and religion issues. But for now, this is Mark Mavsesian with my friend and colleague, Mark DiGirolami. This has been another episode of Legal Spirits, our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, and also on streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple iTunes and also Android and plenty of others that our, our student fellows have set up that I don't even know yet. <laughs> so anyway, we hope you'll, you'll listen to the archives. We hope you'll keep listening to these episodes. But for now, that's it. 
See you next time.